This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information, the ideas, the insight you need to grow healthier, happier lives. Welcome to the program. Another great one today. Today we, um, we're we going to be getting into some really interesting uh, research done by a Brigham Young University professor, along with some professors from Cornell and LSU. It's a new study about the working class poor. And what they're finding out is a lot of the people that are poor, living below the poverty line, they're not just sitting around looking for a handout or a check. The research shows they are actually working. They have jobs. They probably also, they tend to be single moms who are trying to stay afloat. And um, we're going to get some interesting insight that I think will blow all of our minds when it comes to the poor. Because a lot of times in the news, the media, you hear, you you think of one thing, um, you think of somebody being poor, living below the, the standard of living. You think of, you know, you have certain beliefs prejudices, paradigms about them. So we wanted to to give you a real inside look at what's going on with those that are truly suffering financially. And uh, so joining us on that will be Professor Scott Sanders, Dr. Scott Sanders from the sociology department here at Brigham Young University. He was one of the authors of that study. So we'll get to that. But before we do that, let's uh, get to some of the other headlines, some of the interesting news around the country. Terry, what you got for us today? Today, I want to see if I can uh, make you feel that maybe you haven't spent your time wisely. Well, duh. That maybe you can do more. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Are you my mother? No, but this Did my se- wife call you? This 17-year-old has accomplished more. Oh boy, what? Than the vast majority of anyone you know. Really? By far. His name is Moshi Kai uh Calavan or cool. Calavan. C A V A L I N. Cavalin or whatever. All right. So Moshi. We'll just call, we'll just call him, him His Moshi. His name is Moshi. He's 17. He has two college degrees. He's too young to vote. Oh, yeah. He flies airplanes. He's too young to drive a car by himself. <laughs> but he can fly, a, he can fly an he airplane. He can fly an airplane. He, he, life is filled with contrast for the, I think he's now 17 years old, from uh, San Gabriel, California, who has dashed by major milestones at his age, uh, as his age seems to be lagging behind. He's graduated from community college at age 11. Four years later, he had a bachelor's in math from uh, University of California, Los Angeles. What? This year, he started online classes to get a master's in cybersecurity through uh, Brandeis University. He's decided to postpone that pursuit for a couple of terms, though, while he helps NASA develop a surveillance technology for airplanes and drones. Moshi. He also just published his second book, (laughs) drawing on his experience as being bullied and plans to have his pilot's license by the end of the year. Unbelievable. He says, my case isn't that special. It's just a combination of parenting and motivation and inspiration. Yeah, no, Moshi. So your your relationship expert is yeah, what I always yeah, call you, and then yeah. you kind of give me that look like, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in general terms, can you motivate, inspire, and parent a child to achieve this? No. Can I? Are you asking is, me if just I personally can? in general, can, can, a, can a parent do well, this? Well, apparently a couple of them did. Well, you, can, you have to have a motivated kid, though. Yeah. 
You can't. Um, I I don't really have a lot of confidence that my kid is going to fulfill these this well, list of accomplishments. And let me just say, and I love Moshi. Don't know him, but he's a freak show. Okay, because he's amazing. Like, what is that, Mike? What were you doing at eleven? I was running around the neighborhood with my yeah, friends. He was not graduating. Doing homework. Yeah, he's graduating community college. Yeah, I mean, at whatever, at fourteen, what was he doing? UCLA with a bachelor's degree in math. Yeah, what were you doing at fourteen? Not talking to girls because they were scary. That's right. <laughs> it's like so he probably. I, I think what it is is it's it's probably really good parenting meets really good potential, and it it converged and they created something. But now everybody that's listening to this is thinking, okay, sure, Mo, she's great, but what's he like socially? He's probably a misfit. It doesn't really get into his uh, social aspects. Just talks about his accomplishments, right. but. But you he's writing a book on bullying. Being bullied, so there, I mean, there's some indicators, possibly. He, he sounds, like, phenomenal, except everyone, everyone's going to say. But, yeah, but you don't want to move your kid along that fast because you want him to develop. I mean, they've got to develop. There's certain things you can't know at 11, even though intellectually you're able. But developmentally, you still have to grow. You still need to experience life and spending your 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 developmental years you could call them with your face in a book doesn't right. really allow you to have that experience. Well, and then so. there's the whole other side that's about yeah but can he catch a ball i mean come on yeah can he has he slid into second base but if it's something he loves to do right are you supposed to get in the way of that no. i'm not i'm not sure how you parent someone who wants to the guy's move flying and he's gonna fly an airplane fly an airplane yeah. he's helped nasa develop surveillance technology for airplanes and drones <laughs> That's crazy. So, and he's got two books. That's. I mean, it, it's, I mean, how many books have you written? Zero. <laughs> Moshi, he's a stud. Moshi's parents say that he was always quick. At four months, he pointed to a jet in the sky and said the Chinese word for airplane, which ended up being his first word. What? Yeah, his first word was in Chinese. Moshi <laughs> hit the limits of his homeschooling after studying trigonometry at seven. Oh my! Word. I don't know if I ever got to trigonometry. No, I'm pretty sure I didn't. I uh, go this. What then? His mom started driving him to community college. She says, "I think most people just think he's a genius. They believe it all just comes naturally." Says a former professor. He actually works harder than I harder than I think any other student I've ever had. Still, Moshi was a surprise when NASA called to offer work after rejecting him in the past because of his age. I needed an intern who knew software and knew mathematic algorithms, said his boss. I also needed a pilot who could fly it on a Cessna. So they needed someone to build it and then put it on a plane and then fly it and test it. And it says after he finishes his master's from the, the college, Moshi hopes to get a master's in business at MIT, but he says he'll wait until he gets his doctorate to find a girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, Moshi. I'd... I'd, I'd slow it down a bit is he moving too fast do you think as a parent would you slow your kid down i'd slow him down a bit i well i mean is if but if he's loving life so there's this thing called flow psychology of optimal experience it's a book by a guy named mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Hmm. crazy name wow but he teaches that you know when you're in your optimal state you're being tested things aren't easy you're being stretched it's hard but you're challenged and it's exciting and you get in this state of flow. So Moshi's probably in flow. So you don't need to slow him down. But remember, the brain doesn't mature until you're 25. So Moshi knows everything and apparently is genius. 
but you know he's not 25 yet so his you know this is where they they, they just have to get time under their belt wow holy moshi yeah just like that he'll get his doctorate then he'll get a girlfriend yeah then he'll worry about how old will he be when his doctorate's done do we know um, it doesn't say, but you know, he's probably going to be about 21. Wow. He's 17 now. So yeah, that's, <sighs> I want to be like Moshi when I grow up at 17. I was like, I just need to get to college. Yeah. Just get to college at 17. I was still trying to figure out how to take the cap off my pill bottle. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's childproof. I can't figure this out. Uh, mom, you know, but again, too, he's, a, he's gotta be a genius. Doesn't he? Yes. He's he's a but then his professor says it's all hard work. He I mean there's well, a, there's no. a certain extent but then there's how much you can actually yeah, it's absorb. It's probably both. And run with. But if your first word is the Chinese the word Chinese for airplane. Word for airplane uh, yeah. Yeah. You're an exceptional person. His I'm assuming his parents speak Chinese. I'm hoping he absorbed that from he somewhere. Just pick it up from yeah. the babysitter. <laughs> he picked it up from the ether. It was just floating yeah. around. Oh, he picked Chinese. it up at the Chinese restaurant while they were having dinner. Man, what a cool! But I love that story because it also tells us that that there's those exceptions, right, on this earth, and they're walking around and they're right there, and yet it also makes you wonder what your kid's potential could be if you, you know, pushed a little bit more. Yeah, so share the story of Moshi to your kids and have them, you know, do their chores. Holy Moshi, that's fantastic. Get them motivated. It's actually a really good segue maybe for our next uh, guest. Um, We're going to take a break, come back, but next uh, few minutes we're going to be talking with uh, and and replaying a a wonderful interview that we had with a BYU sociologist who uh, is Professor Scott Sanders here from BYU. He's going to walk us through a study that he he did with some other professors from Cornell and LSU um, about America's poor. We have a lot of preconceived ideas about who they are, about what they uh, do or don't do for their money, and the study is going to enlighten us about what really is going on with these people that are in these low-paying jobs and how badly they're struggling to support themselves and their families. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Scott Sanders. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, who would have thunk? Would you have ever, ever in your life thought that a big box store would make you gain weight? And then you go into some of these big box stores and you're like, something's going on. Well, it doesn't. No, it does. The store itself actually... <laughs> adds, it's your personal choices. Adds three pounds to your belly. To your belly. There are people, though, that are susceptible and we would say, well, then grow some character. Yes. Sure. Right. And the guy that's got bad genes, doesn't know he even has bad genes, and is working 85 hours a week, picks up some corn dogs. Have you had a bad corn family? dog? No. You, corn dogs are great. Corn dogs are gifts from heaven. <clears throat> I used to eat corn dogs for breakfast. Ah, that sounds great. At first it was two. 
Then it was three. Well, you want a balanced breakfast. Sometimes. And then at three, it's an odd breakfast. I wanted an even one, so I had four. You know what? I used to love a muffin here and there <laughs> until somebody said, hey, muffin top. No, until I figured out how much, how many calories are in one muffin. Yeah, Ten, d- ten million. Yeah. Ten million calories, one muffin. That's close to the actual number. Yeah, ten million. Seriously, yeah. it's it's a it's a bomb. It's a it's a calorie bomb. It's but, a caloric, but it's good killer. Though. It tastes oh, really yummy. Good. Yeah, yummy. Costco sells great muffins. Absolutely, a whole like twelve box of them are. My heart is racing right now because my wife went to Costco yesterday. We have all these muffins at home. There you go. I can't eat them because I can't afford ten million calories. For breakfast. Just keep walking. You'll be fine. That's why I need protein and get a corn dog for breakfast. Is there protein in a corn dog? Oh, yeah. There's a hot dog in the middle. No, so that's the question. Is there actual protein in the hot dog? Whatever's in the hot dog. It's protein. May or may not qualify as protein. It may be bone meal. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> Whatever it is, it sounds really yummy. Any other headlines? The, today, Change my thought t- here. Today is National Zipper Day. Oh. So uh, if you think about it, how many items in your closet use a zipper? Everybody check your zipper right now. How many times do you, or how many items do you own that are held together by this simple yet innovative invention? Some guy, Jimmy Zipper. Since the figure is much too high to count, just celebrate it instead, and it says, happy zipping today. Oh, that's a great day. Where would you be without your zipper? Every time before I get up for a speech, my wife turns to me and she's like, is your zipper up? You know what I mean? You make one mistake, okay? Yeah. One mistake you in front do, of a large group, and she won't let you live it down. And there's nothing quite as awful as a broken zipper. Like, oh, nothing ruins totally. a day faster than a broken nothing. zipper. I don't know that I've ever had a broken zipper. Really? You've yeah. been that lucky, that fortunate in your life to never experience that. Yeah. I buy heavy-duty zippers. Wow. Like on your backpack when I you're trying to zip it? You always, and it breaks. Oh, yeah. Backpack zippers. Those are just meant to break. Yeah, I guess so. But always splurge for a good zipper. That's some advice I'm going to give you for your wedding. Okay. Splurge on the good zipper. Good zipper. How can you tell if it's a good zipper? How, does it zip? You got to hear the zip. If it is like cheap zipper. That's it. Is that a quality zipper? Do that again. Yep. It's a great zipper. Or you're it's, stepping on a mouse. It's the tonal <laughs> quality of the zipper. It, that's how if you know. Got, if it's got a good tone to it. It's kind of like when you thump a melon <laughs> that's what I was in thinking. the produce department. Yeah. Donk, 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 donk. In other news. Oh, we changed the Or <laughs> actual news rather than are, the are stuff we done, that we Are made. we done with that one? Yeah, it just kind of carries on in here. Okay. Hulu, the Oop. online video streaming Oop. service, Oop. they have paid just under a million dollars an episode for Seinfeld. Really? There's 180 episodes of Seinfeld. They paid just under a million. Per episode? Per episode. Those guys are still making money. They, uh, they're they expected to announce this uh, either today or tomorrow, officially. They also purchased the 300 episodes and ongoing of the CSI franchise. How can you afford $180 million for episodes that we've I'm, all seen a million times? I'm going to guess they're in, in, in installments every year. Okay. And it's based, probably a 10-year contract. Probably. And based on the uh, projections that Hulu has for people signing up to watch Seinfeld. So Hulu has that much money. They think so. Think of all the zippers you could buy with $180 million. It's a lot of zippers. High-quality zippers. An unmanned Russian cargo spacecraft ferrying supplies to the International Space Station is yep. plunging back to Earth this morning. Ah, oh, boy. Apparently out of control. Somebody's in trouble. 
The Russian space agency is trying to reestablish contact with the cargo vessel, but it's struggling because the two-ton spacecraft is tumbling as See, it's coming through the atmosphere. Nobody's in it. It's just a, it's just a cargo, just a cargo, yeah, rocket. It's, and it's supposed, to, I think it's supposed to come back. It's oh, one it's of these, coming back. But now it's coming back out of control. Now you know why? It's because the iPad. Somebody yes, there's probably an iPad. There's an iPad just flipping around in that rocket. And so they're they're saying if they can't regain control of the spacecraft, it'll come down. Very little, if any, of the vessel will survive reentry into Earth's atmosphere because it's tumbling. And I guess the space station won't get those their what, delivery. I don't know if that actually made the delivery and is coming back, or if they lost control beforehand. The story See, was not clear. They're going to be so mad because they, they were expecting something like, "Oh, I wanted my I wanted my my iPod." Nope. Lost. A Texas commissioner yes. is making. A, he's a ag, Texas agricultural commissioner. Sid Miller wrote a letter to the editor of the Houston Chronicle last week, calling for a ten-year ban on deep fat fryers and soda machines in Texas public schools to be overturned. We get get those fryers back. He, he wrote that in the schools. He wrote that the fight is not about French fries; it's about freedom. In response to arguments about childhood obesity and health, Miller stated that school districts, not the state, should have the freedom to make these decisions. I will always support decision-making at the local level. Fat fryers in the school for freedom. <laughs> it almost makes you cry. It does. Like, I almost – I had a tear. I was, so, I, I was getting a tear. I understand what he's saying, but do you think he reads it before he submits the email? And... Stay out of our schools. Over deep fat fried fruit. If we want our kids to be fat and obese, that is a local decision. That's a nice ring to it, like freedom fryers. Mm. Freedom fryers. Well, we yeah. used to have freedom That's fries, really cool. right, after yeah. the war. So freedom fryers. In our schools. You know what? Wow. We got Baltimore burning. Yes. And Texas is worrying about their fat fryer. It's about freedom. Okay. Get off my back. <laughs> Can a guy not have a fat fryer? Oh, boy. I mean, I, okay, whatever. Just, you know, Baltimore's burning. Earthquakes. Earthquakes in Nepal. There's some important things happening. We just found out that big box stores may be adding to our weight, and you're fighting for a fryer. And you're wrapping it in a flag. Flags for freedom fries. Fryers. Okay. God bless America. Any other news? How much time do we have? Ten seconds. Yeah. Okay. Yogurt may not be as healthy as you thought it was. Ah. Really? Apparently the rest of the world understands that yogurt is full of sugar. Yeah. But here it's a health food. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I help, just grab yourself a healthy gogurt. So 4, 000, they did a study with 4,000 people nearly four for four years found no correlation between eating yogurt and better overall health. Really? Yeah, it used to be that's you know 60s, 70s, 80s. That's women would they would market it to women. Women are going to get healthy by eating yogurt. So it's good, but and cottage cheese might not way. be helping you at all. Okay, good lesson. Good lesson. Okay, folks, we're going to take a break. Just here to help you live longer. That's all we want is that you live longer and that you get your fryers out of the hands of those government crazies that are trying to keep fries away from your kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends. Uh, the American dream, is it still alive or is it now just, you know, an illusion? Well, for a huge percentage of the population, it's it's probably becoming less and less of a real opportunity. Uh, today we're joined by Professor Scott Sanders, who's a professor of sociology, assistant professor of sociology here at Brigham Young University. He's uh, written a really, I think, incredible study and was a member of a team that put together this study on the working class poor. And the working class poor uh, would be those people, Scott, that they're they're actually working. So the majority of the poor, I guess some of the numbers I saw, there's roughly about 46.5 million people who received food stamps. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're obviously poor. What What are the numbers of those seen as poor, living below the poverty line? Yeah, that's about right. About, about 46, 46 million. million. Yeah. But you're saying about 26 million of those are working class poor. About 24 million. Yeah. 24 if million. You, if you took a if you take a, a definition of that they're um part of a household where um the head of household is working at least part-time or more. Yeah. Then tw- then you have about 24 million uh, men William men William men women and children yeah. living in poverty. So like we talked before, that's below $24,000 a year for a family of four. I mean, if you're a mom with three kids, you and how do you work full time with three kids without? I mean, I guess we then throw our kids in daycare, yeah. which is going to cost unless it's subsidized. Which I mean, how on earth do you dig out? You just can't dig out if you're a single mom. And yeah. I'm assuming a lot of the poor are single women. Yeah, that's and that's what we found is that that women are more likely to be working poor than mm-hmm. than men, and, and that's part of. Part of the problem of when we're addressing this, what do we want to put priorities on? What policies do we want to do? Now we can now we can enumerate yeah. it. How do we help them? And if we think look back at the '96 welfare reforms, that was one of the problems where we had this mentality of, oh, the poor just need a job. Right. Let's just get them a job. Get them They'll work their way out of, uh-huh. of welfare. And what ended up happening is, is that you know it did help people get jobs, but what we had is there's all these single mothers that then have this dilemma of what do I do with my children. Oh yeah, because I'm either going to spend most of my paycheck in in childcare, yeah, or and then my and then they're going to be raised by someone else. So I may as well be home, or may as well be home. So that's the dilemma. That's the ethical issue we're we're presenting to people. Do you want to spend all your money so your kid can be in childcare, or or be on on food stamps? And so yeah. that's it's we're not setting up very positive options no. for people, and we're almost forcing it has to be dual income. So mm-hmm. now we are forcing couples that everyone has to work. To get out where some families might feel it's better that only one of the members, one parent works while the other takes care of the family. Yeah, and that's that's where you know we talk about in the paper that this is this is beyond just an economic. This is an ethical issue when yeah. we're talking about working poor. And so when you have questions like you mentioned before about you know what should we do about minimum wage, well, that's a strictly eth- economic issue. Yeah. If we ethically believe that we should think that uh, a household should be su- should be supported by one person, then we need to say, well, then we need to make it sure that there's jobs out. There. Then if, you need, yeah. Then you need jobs and better pay. Yeah. So I, you know, I've talked to colleagues who do more family research than I do. I, I do more just kind of mm-hmm. poverty, but colleagues, you know, we, when we've talked about these results and some of their own research, one of the the ways we're undermining the families economically, we're not oh, yeah. presenting. Not first of all, we don't have a, a system out there where people can really work their way out of poverty anymore. Right. But then we're penalizing families too because we're saying you can't make it anymore, and so both of you have to go out and work, and the kids have to go in child uh, uh, into daycare somewhere. And true. and that's that's what we're setting up for the American family right well, now. Well, and it's maddening because we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. One at one stage we're saying there shouldn't be a minimum minimum wage simply because 
you know, we're pro-business. Mm-hmm. And at the other side, we're saying we're pro-family and we want to be able to have the family, you know, maybe be a, a single income earner. But the, you can't have both. You, you can't pretend to want minimum – not want minimum wage and not want the, the, the salaries to go up while simultaneously saying – we want to support family. At some point, you're choosing one or the other. Exactly. Sometimes those ethical, moral issues don't line up with that. And that's huge as we're thinking about presidential candidates because they're going to be – everyone's going to be pro-family. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to sit there and say, I hate families. Yeah. I want them destroyed. <laughs> but our policies make or break that. Yeah. And it's hard because – you know, you, I mean a lot of people would say just – when you just hear the rhetoric that goes on in talk radio and with, all, with our politicians, we hear all the time they're so pro-family. But look at their – look at what they're saying. Yeah. If they're not supporting family policies like making it so that you don't have to – so you have the choice of having one parent stay at home and that we could pull out of this hole – then um, if they're not if they're not showing the policy, then think deeper. Yeah, I hear that. You know, this is this is my personal view of things, but I see this a lot where I'll see people saying we want pro family. You know, everyone again, everyone's going to say pro family, sure. um, but but what? But if you had to rank what they actually are saying, they're saying pro business then pro family, uh-huh, and exactly. those don't always match up. And That's so right. we, we need to be careful when we're or, thinking. Or they about might not say on the other side pro government, yeah. or pro family. And sometimes yeah. we think if you're pro government, you're pro family. But yeah. you're not either. Yeah. I mean, it's like so you can't be pro-business or pro-government. You have to be pro-family first and then create policies that, that are structured right. Yeah, and that's, that's the, like some of this research like this one. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got another paper with the, my, my co-author Dan Lichter from um, Cornell and our colleague Ken Johnson at uh, University of New Hampshire where we're looking at infant poverty. And the reality mm-hmm. is, is there's policies that are made and then it finally affects American people. And these, these pay, this study here and this other one on infant poverty, that's where we see what's actually happening. What is the snapshot of American life? Yeah. And so we can have yeah. these, we can have these new pundits and politicians saying their sound bites that sound nice and pro-America and pro-freedom. But when we really see what the, the numbers are telling us, the, the, you know, from the census, this is, you know, this, we didn't make these numbers up. These yeah. are good. Good numbers that the, the census and other um, you know agencies have collected, we get a different picture of what America looks like, particularly post recession. The, yeah. the, the lower classes just haven't recovered, and that poverty, the opportunity to improve, uh, just is, is is going away. And that's where we see this rise of working poverty, um, where it hasn't been as as, well, as large a percentage of the poor as it has in the past. Yeah, and you you hear. You hear t- talk about jobs and the, the employment rate. None of us really know what the real employment rate is because it's depending on what you're counting. Mm-hmm. But this also makes sense as to why many people might have just dropped out of the rate of the job market simply because if you're poor, you've got to decide: Am I going to go make money to pay for my child care, or am I going to not work? And if I'm not going, I mean, it might just be easier to not work. Yeah, I mean, really, because other than or work part time, yeah, and yet, and then others will cry. Why aren't you working full time? You could work full time, and then, but we don't understand the complexity. We always think just cause effect, but in sociology, it's multiple causes. <laughs> oh yeah, multiple effects. Yeah. This is highly complex it, systems. It's really, really complex, and and that's that's the reality. I mean, if, I mean, I I don't want to put my life in the same life as um, you know some of these working poor because I'm oh. I'm in a different 
boat. But yeah. my wife uh, is, has a PhD too, and we had to sit down and figure out was it worth her continuing her career because of the cost of childcare? Yeah. Was it worth it for what we wanted to do as a family? And we had the luxury of sit back and saying, well, mm-hmm. we could at least live off of my salary. Yeah, you know, and and uh, but the reality is a lot of Americans don't have that luxury. Yeah, it's it's like, well, do we do we not make it and hope that food stamps and some of these other programs can make up the difference, or do you try to go out too? And then we try to figure out what childcare costs will be because that eats up so much of an income. Uh-huh. It's it really is kind of um, disheartening when we, we think yeah. About it. If you put yourself in their shoes, let alone like you believed you could get a PhD, yeah, and your wife believed that. Yeah. I was the first in my family to get I think a master's and a PhD, but I didn't believe I could yeah. until people kept telling me I could. I, I and we came from uh, a single parent home, so we were I guess we were never probably below the poverty line, but we were we were above it. We were doing okay, but it was my mom working hard and my dad. And but in the end, I had no idea I could educate my way out of it. Mm-hmm. But it's funny now, though. I guess I was the, one of that small percentage. But I my kids, by golly, I tell them every day, yeah, you, you this isn't going to happen easily, and. You need education, and yet you have to believe you can do it, and you have to have almost a track record of doing it. Yeah, and that's part of you know the trick of, of this poverty too uh, is understanding – let's say we'll stick with the kids. Yeah. Understanding, well, what classes do I need to take in high school mm. to get ready for a college? How do I apply for college? How do I apply for financial support? Yeah. Uh, how do I pick a major? How do – you know the little tricks that you're supposed to go talk to the professor in their office yeah. to get to know no, them. Right, like, exactly. I didn't know that till grad no. school, right? You're but, supposed to have study skills. Yeah. All these, exactly. all these things that that aren't necessarily there. And that's where we talk about some of these these penalties for the poor is that this isn't this is something that's not known. Yeah. And so it's not passed on to the kids. And so that the ability to be able to work yourself out uh, is is even that much more difficult because you don't have some of these 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 this this knowledge that can be passed on from generation yeah, to generation. Yeah, we keep the poor poor just and, and it's by knowledge that it's not even what's the name for that type of knowledge? It's not even tangible. It's just it's just learned. It's just it, – it's not It's not like sitting in a class. Yeah. It's like you should just know that you need to go check on your grades. Yeah. Well, it, uh, my wife was the first in her family to graduate from college and just that – you know, she had a mm. – you know, it's like a, she had to break down all these things. Well, that's not how you do it and miss out on yeah. certain opportunities. And then her – she's, you know, one of the older of a big family. So she was able to tell all she's her tutoring. younger siblings yeah. – this is how you do it. This is what you do. And so they've all been able to be more successful because they don't have the same kind of barriers. But if you think about yeah. if you think about that, like how do you how do I have a career? You know, how do you do business? Uh, these things aren't necessarily passed down. Right. You know, it's, there's usually an environment people are around and they, they they learn some some tricks of the trade that aren't in a pamphlet, yeah. aren't in a classroom. Nope. And those those can make a difference. And it's I think so I think true. when we look at inequality, where we're seeing that this this growing inequality in the United States, it's this accumulation of that. Is that we we're seeing some it's people that subtle information. Some people have been doing this for generations. Yeah. Their parents have been educated, and and so they know how to do it and get their kids into school. Which why wouldn't you? I'm no, not right. trying to belittle. No, that. everybody would. No, everyone's going to try to do sense. that. Yeah. But there's a growing population that don't know how to don't know the value of education, don't know how to pursue it, don't know how to get good jobs. And so that's where we're seeing this increase mm. in the bottom percentage. And you're only a generation States. away from that, right? You're you're yeah. you're one generation f- that that f- like you could be you could come from a family that's well educated, well integrated. The other thing is once you're in that, you're in the system. Mm-hmm. You're in the network. Yeah. And the networks can help you stay in the networks. Yeah. Once you fall out of the network and the education, one generation, you you could lose 
your entire fa- family. You're, I mean, yeah. everybody, all of your all of your kids, your grandkids could just fall into this routine of not thinking they can go to college. Yeah, and I guess you know the positive side of that is that it could be also the other exactly. way. Exactly. That it can flip but it, it. But it is, but it isn't quick, uh-uh. right? And that's something we that you know when we talk about development and poverty reduction, it's never a no. quick thing. It's going to be. We're going to make a change, and then hopefully the next generation will benefit mm-hmm. from those. Well, then you bring in immigration. So then we have more immigration coming in, and then they might fall below the poverty line. And then we're wondering why there's higher crime, why there's all these other things. I mean this is what I think is important to be thinking about is what do we want as a society? You keep bringing up is it a moral issue? Is it, a, is it an economic policy? Mm-hmm. But it, we're the ones that vote. We're yeah. the and even if you're just the middle class, quit assuming the poor don't care and they're lazy, mm-hmm. and quit assuming the rich know. I mean, the reality is is we're all in charge of this, aren't yeah. we? So we got to probably push our politicians a little harder and be informed. Like your study, what I love about it is it informs us. These people aren't lazy. A lot of them are just flat out trapped. Yeah, and they're digging. They're doing the best digging they can. But when you're digging at a low-income job, you're not going to dig yourself out of this. Yeah, and I think you know one thing if we're thinking about you know voting and being yeah. informed. One thing that that this study I think highlights is so we did 126 different measures of working poverty. Oh. If you can get from those different measures, you can have two percent of the population in working poverty all the way up to about 24 percent. So you can get huge Jeez. range. So think about what's the assumptions being made behind these things. Right. When when you hear these numbers, when you hear policies being made. What is it assuming? Is it like we talked about before? Is it assuming single parent? Is it That's assuming right. dual parent incomes? And does that line up with what you feel is correct? There's again, there's economic, what you view economically. There's moral issues, right. and that's up to the individual to figure out how they want that's to pursue right. that. But to under be educated, understanding what those the assumptions numbers aren't go what, into exactly. those numbers. That's the thing. And see that again. Interestingly, that's an educational benefit. So you go get a PhD, you understand to yeah. not trust any number. Yeah. What, yeah. So what, what, what were the assumptions is how you started. What were the assumptions that led us to those numbers? Yeah. And we always have to t- check the assumptions and check who's saying it. I mean depending on what station you're listening to or depending on what politician you're hearing, there's always going to be certain inherent assumptions. Yeah, and that's where they're, they're usually correct. Yeah. But they're not going to tell you what your assumptions that's are. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, so and then they throw to, the number out yeah. there and everyone's like, oh, OK, yeah. yeah. So what would you suggest, Scott, as we wrap this up? As somebody that studies working class poor, what, what should we – we should, number one, be checking assumptions and becoming informed. What else should we make sure we remember – when it comes to the poor and working class poor and also you know pulling up the 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 working poor yeah i think for me i think what i would say is give people the benefit of the doubt there are always going to be people out there who are going to milk the system oh, yeah. and we're not going to get rid of that so right. when you hear those stories yes that's true but 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 next time you're at a fast food store next time you're at uh checking out at the grocery store and look at the person that's helping you, and remember that's probably what poverty is. Mm-hmm. That job, whether they're you know just still the teenager, that job doesn't make enough to to feed a family of no. four. And to remember that there, the most people out there are trying, and so we should give the benefit of the doubt. We should we should be compassionate and maybe think about what we want our politicians to be thinking about and the view that they have of the poor. Yeah. To make sure our politicians that we vote for a way that is saying, I want the American dream to be here. I want that person at the the fast food place to be able to have a better future and their kids to have a better future. So, so give people the benefit of the doubt and remember that the, the, the face of poverty isn't the panhandler. Mm. It's the, it's the person working the nine yeah. to five. Uh, and odds are it's job. probably a mom yep. 
across the counter from you. Yeah, exactly. And she and she's going home to three kids yeah. that are still struggling in school, and she's she's hoping she has enough to pay for food that day. Uh, yeah, it's tough stuff. Well, Scott, I appreciate it. It's, it's seriously, I think, powerful insight. And um, folks, it's it's our life. It's it's ours. We get to we get to go be what we want to be. I would also just add that let's make sure that we're focusing on pro family candidates first. Pro-business second, pro-government second, pro-family first. And you would know that by ask them. Just go find out what do they believe in, how do they, what are their assumptions about how we grow a family. Does that Do we grow a family by having everybody work? Do some people stay home? Can that, can that be a male staying home or a female staying home? Let's go find out what our, what our, uh, what our leaders believe in and what, they, what their assumptions are. Great stuff. Professor Scott Sanders here from Brigham Young University. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, what a, what an interesting discussion. Again, we sit and we listen to the news. We listen to our politicians. And we just, we get this idea that we know, right? That we know what's going on with the poor. And the reality is we have no clue. We have no clue. Unless you've lived through it and had the fear of making it or not making it. We don't know. We just, but we then throw out this idea like, you know, if people would just work hard, you can make anything happen when you work hard. Uh, sure. Totally agree. And let's throw a little other data in there. If you're working hard to just give up half of your income to take care of your children, you're not working, you're working hard's not helping you. We'll work harder. Okay, so I'll just work harder to then give up two-thirds of my income to take care of my children. Well, you shouldn't have had kids then if you weren't. Okay, great. And life happens. And uh, some things you can't plan for, like let's say a husband having an affair on you or becoming an alcoholic and leaving you high and dry. Well, yeah, but that's why we got to deal with alcohol. (sighs) Folks. We don't need any more judgment. We don't need any more critics. We don't need anybody else telling us how bad the poor are for not working harder or um, that a policy is going to change everything. A policy is not going to change it because these are complex situations. So when you're looking at your politicians, get very real about them. They might be able to spew a lot of rhetoric and you know sound bombastic like they really have a clue – But do they actually have a heart that cares about what's happening to a single mom in poverty? Because they probably don't. If if you can't relate, you can't relate. And so all of us can do this a little bit better. Next time you're across the the counter from somebody at your getting your lunch, look in their eyes for heaven's sakes and try for a second to put yourself in their shoes. What is it like to be them with their two or three kids at home and doing everything they can to just give their kid a hope and a dream and um, 
and see if you can't be changed just by feeling something. Feel. Feel for these people. They're not just a statistic. These are human beings trying to just have the good life you have. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Wheatley Minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools, the information, the insight, the answers you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Top of the morning to you. And uh, we got a great show for you today. Um, we are going to be talking in just a few minutes with Dan Rockwell, who ha- runs a wonderful um, blog called Leadership Freak, Empowering Leaders 300 Words at a Time. And uh, Dan's going to be joining us um, to talk about seven ways to reignite your energy. So if you have been feeling a little down, a little low in the energy area, maybe it's time we reignite it. He'll be giving us some ideas for how to be a low-energy leader versus a high-energy leader. Uh, Low-energy leader just comes natural, right? But uh, when you do it, you end up driving people crazy, and they don't want to be around you. So stick with us. We'll get to Dan in just a minute. But before we do that, uh, let's go to Terry, find out what's going on around the world. Any headlines, any news, Terry? Quite a few. Lots of things going on. We'll focus on one. Let's just do one today. If you walk into a restaurant, Matt, yes. and you see on the menu that it gives you the calories, the, uh, the health, nutrition information, your fat, protein, all that, right? do you look at it and then make judgments accordingly, or do you ignore it and get what you want? Um, like if it actually lines out and says exactly how many calories, I don't pay attention to that. I mean, I'll see it. I read yeah. it. I can see. But does it Does it shape your choices if you see that there's a lot of fat in one dish versus another, so you... Yeah, it it probably would shape my choices, which is why I do not usually go to restaurants like that. Okay. I don't want to know that information. You you want to go enjoy yourself, not know what you're eating. Yeah, but but I, I kind of know well, when I'm eating yeah. something that's horrible. I mean, I usually know it about an hour later. Mm-hmm. But what I but I so I don't usually try to eat the worst thing on the menu, but I don't eat the healthiest thing on the menu. But I don't want to know the numbers. Because that's you, just you can't really... al- you can't always tell what the best or worst thing is for you. Well, I mean, I can sometimes tell. sometimes the worst thing for you is a salad. Oh, really? Because they that's have good to know. dressing or the way they cook, say the the meat that's in the salad, the chicken or whatever. Mm. The it they do certain things that add extra fat to it, and it becomes yeah. quite possibly the uh, worst thing on the menu. Okay, yeah. So it can't always just be your you're safe with what you think it is. Well, but I mean, I know if it's mothered in gravy, and uh, you know if. Yeah, if, yeah. if grandpa died eating one of them, then I know it's bad. <laughs> yeah, try, if, if it's covered in gravy, it might be bad. Yeah, I try not to pay too much attention. But it's really good, though. Oh, so good. Lots of country gravy. Mm-hmm. In 2008, New York City began requiring any restaurant with 15 or more locations to list calorie counts for their products. Wow. The plan, in theory, was that customers would make more moderate choices if they had all the information required to do so. Well, that was smart of them. What'd they find out? In practice, the mandate doesn't work at all. Oh, it doesn't? 
Like nobody, nobody actually, they don't pay attention? A new study published in Health Affairs found that while fast food customers claimed to notice and use calorie count data, there was no consistent change in the nutritional content of foods and beverages purchased or in how often respondents purchased fast food. Ah. So it didn't change their behavior whatsoever. Darn it. They noticed it. They went, wow, that has a lot of fat in it. Can I have two? <laughs> well, they didn't say that, but they, they continued ordering the normal food. Oh, so it's not helping. No. They're 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 hoping that it would like curtail no. bad habits and because instead it, people don't care. Well what it means is if I get the low cal option, then I can have dessert. Well, there's that. So it just adds now I'm like it's kinda like you remember when you ha- you only had like six bucks to eat and you just like, okay, so I can have I'll have that and I'll have that and then I'll have enough for that. Right. Now <laughs> Uh, if, when I count my calories, okay, so I'll have a lower cal menu, okay, uh-huh. and then I can get, you know, a side of mashed potatoes, and I can get dessert. Yeah, so it's coming down to the people noticed the calorie count, but they didn't change any behavior because of it. Well, I bet you that Which makes New York whole... sad because they were trying to fix our thinking pattern. Yes, they were. Remember, New York had put the whoever the mayor was put yeah. a limit on the size of soft drinks you right. could get. Michael Bloomberg, wasn't it at the time? I think so. Yes. Yeah, you can't have the big gulp, or you get the big gulp tax. And so people were buying two. That's right. So they could get the same amount. Yeah, I need to buy three twenty-two ounces. <laughs> <laughs> and then they walk out, pour them into their super big gulp mug, and then just drop the containers. So even with all the information, human behavior stayed the same. Well, what does that tell you? We don't care. We don't care. Or we get used to it and we no longer pay attention to it. So it says there's definitely a subset of people who see and use this information, says researcher Jonathan Cantor of New York University, but we're not seeing any changes at the population level. Despite this lack of evidence for effectiveness, a similar national rule national rule is set to go into effect in December of 2016 as part of the Affordable Care Act. There you go. See, what's interesting, though, is, okay, for example, have you been to a fast food restaurant like a McDonald's and actually read the menu? No. You Be- usually go in knowing what you want. There's a picture. Oh, there's, that's the picture I want. I'll have that. You go, I would like a four, right. and could you biggie size it or whatever yeah. the thing so is. So if you already know, because, by the way, these sound like they're chains, right? So 15 or more. 15 or more locations. Locations. So these are chains. You go into the chain, you know what you're looking for. I mean, who's new to a chain? Yeah. I mean, it's the first time. The, Unless it's a new chain, obviously. Yeah, but you got one You got one shot. Yeah. They got one chance and they try to paying attention. And they try to make it easy with the, the combination meals, and they give you a number, right. so you just, I want a number four. Thanks. Yeah. And then, it, but number four has 450 calories, but number five has 520 calories. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll do, I'll do the four, because it's less. And I'll supersize it, <laughs> which now I've just made it a five calorie-wise, but it's cheaper. <laughs> so why do you think we do that? I think we're human. And I think, A, we're going to – the people that – so apparently they say it works for certain people, and those are the people that are already counting calories. Yes. They're already in that mode of calorie counting. Or maybe they're not at those restaurants Uh huh. because they know what's there. <laughs> that's exactly right. So anybody else that's like, uh, should I go just eat at home? My whole food diet, or should I go to one of these chains? You know, the chain people—we call them the chain gang. Uh-huh. We're, we're not reading. We're not reading calories. No, 
I just I, I when they when they started talking about this and putting this into effect, I saw it happening in New York, and I know it's going to yeah. go nationwide. You're just like, I don't think people are going to care, and the ones that I, I think there'll be a lot of discussion about uh, personal rights for some reason. I think right. people may may look at that as you're trying to tell me what to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're trying to control me. You're trying to control First me. First, the drinks, just more government overreach yeah. and all this. Instead of you know, they're trying to give you some information so you know what you're eating. But I'm going to bet. That you go to the same places, those chains, and you put a list of all of the ingredients that are unhealthy for you in the meal, no one's going to pay attention to that either. No. We, we don't pay attention. Like, think about that. When you go open a box of macaroni and cheese, you're not you, – you can read what's in there. But most people that just love, like, a box of macaroni and cheese every day, yeah. they're not reading that. No. They're just eating the macaroni and cheese. It's just – it's information, sure – but I get you're trying to get me to stop it by information, but I got bigger problems than that. <laughs> it's so sad. So, yeah, watch for this December 2016. Yeah. Well, so that'd be what, January 2017. Yeah. You'll see uh, in, in, in big change, you'll start seeing calories and nutritional information on all your food. Oh, boy. And then you'll probably, if you notice or if you focus on it, you may feel guilty for eating a 700-calorie sandwich. Nah. No, no, no. But what we should do is do a little warning out there. Just look for it. So when you start noticing, you know, the calorie count, just notice it. And then you can forget about it <laughs> the next day. That's uh, we that's, you know, that's a little bit of information we like to bring you from the Matt Townsend show. Hey, by the way, it might be getting into why our next guest is going to be joining us. We interviewed um this this uh Dan Rockwell and you may he's been on the show two or three times. He is the uh, author of the blog called Leadership Freak and is is really just trying to give business people, leaders, some tools, some information to to live a healthier life and to be a better leader. We are going to replay an interview that we had with him um, a few months ago, back actually in June, where he talked about seven ways to reignite your energy. It's a powerful interview. We wanted to go back and um, – and give you a chance to get your energy up, especially after you've been eating all of these high-calorie meals we've been talking about. We'll take a break, my friends, and uh, when we come back, we'll start an interview and uh, one of the great friends of the show, Dan Rockwell from Leadership Freak. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like you need to reach for your third Monster Energy drink around 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Do you have to take cat naps just to kind of stay alive and ahead every few hours? Or do you wish you uh, ever wish that you just didn't have to handle as many tweets or texts or even attend so many meetings? Well, if you're run- running out of energy and you're exhausted at around 2 o'clock, you may be running into some leadership problems as well. We've gone back to some of our archives, and we found a wonderful interview with um, Dan Rockwell about seven ways to reignite your energy and to give you a boost and how that boost might make you a better leader. And we wanted to play that interview right now. The interview was originally aired back in June, and this is how I started the interview with this question. What are we finding out about energy, and how does it impact our leadership? The reason this is so important, Matt, is I mean, everything you do requires energy. And so if you don't have energy, guess what? You're not going to go very far. So So true. uh, And 
I think, you know, the most important thing we manage, this is, I may be surprising to some people, but I think the most important thing we manage is our energy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's subtle, isn't it? Because you don't, you don't really pay attention to it, but you wake up in the morning and you're like, I have no energy. And you, you go to your meetings and you don't have energy. But what I loved about your article is it impacts everything. It doesn't. It impacts how you lead. It impacts what even notes you take. It impacts everything. Uh, for me, um, it, you know, the, the whole energy thing is important because the less energy I have, the more negative I become, I think. The less yeah. hope I have about the future, the, the less willing I am to try new things. I mean, you know, things just go dark as energy goes down. And it seems like if my job as a leader is to, you know, enroll people into my ideas if I don't have the energy, then as a leader, I'm not going to have as much uh, as much impact. What are signs then of maybe low energy? What are some things that would be telling us, obviously, we don't have it? Um, feeling like the world is against you, that uh, you know nobody's on your side, wanting to quit. I, I think, uh, I don't know about you, Matt, when I feel, uh, when my energy starts really dipping, then I also feel... Uh, unappreciated, you know, um, yeah. um, short temper. I mean, so many of the things that we're not really proud of about ourselves, yep. <laughs> they're, they're connected to this issue. You know, have, have you gotten into that yet, Dan, in your work about willpower? Um, they talk about you have more willpower when you have more energy, right? So your willpower goes down as the day goes down, which is why we kind of do the binge eating at night. It's why we make a lot of our mistakes at night. Um, but you need that. You need the willpower that comes from energy. There is some fascinating work done on this, Matt. Uh, you know, that um, I think the idea is that willpower is sort of like a muscle. And as you, the more you use it, it, it fatigues. And so that's why we do great on our diet, you know, in the morning or, uh, you know, through part of the day. But then if we're exercising, our, constantly exercising our willpower, it, it weakens after a while. Uh, we all kind of know what that feels like, oh. I guess. Totally. Uh, yeah. Talk about your principles in your article. Um, again, if they go to your website, leadershipfreak.wordpress.com, it, it really is. It's just a cool blog, and it's one I go to regularly. Um, but on there, you talk about your three energy principles. Walk us through I talk, those. I talk about the three energy principles. Yeah. <laughs> I shop, I probably should have that in front of me. You, I? Well, you don't even remember. One is long-term success requires energy management, right? So, uh, yeah. so yeah. if you're cuz cuz if you think about it, I I think that I can have a million ideas and I mean and and even be good at certain things, but the minute you don't have the energy to deliver on your ideas, you're basically useless. Yeah, you know and I, he, Here's the thing, Matt, and I'm getting a little bit more experienced, if you want to say that, because I have really white hair now. Yeah. And, and uh, when I was younger, I, you know, I didn't pay attention to this enough. You know, I think you can kind of burn the candle at both ends for quite a while, uh, but after a while, that catches up with you, and then you really do lose some of your potential and some of your opportunity. Do you think it, this is a um, a problem that even like is more real for for active, high successful people, uh, because it seems like energy is easy to have if, you know, you're just got your day in, your day out stuff. But a lot of the leaders I know, they're highly creative, they're driven, 
they're super motivated, but it also seems like, you know, they might be stimulating, they're using caffeine, they're using, they're not sleeping as much, they're doing everything they can, which is simultaneously killing their ability to get the results they need. Oh, you know, and here's the thing about type A's, high energy people, people who really want to achieve is they're not paying attention to this because they're so busy, they have their head down, getting stuff done, reaching that goal, climbing that mountain, whatever it is, that they don't take the time until something really goes wrong to think about how do I manage, how do I keep filling this energy tank? There's a principle of life, Matt, and that is over the long term, you cannot take out more than you put in. I mean, it only makes sense. So it is, it's true. You know, the high, the high achievers do struggle with this, I think. Do, um, because too, maybe this is what correlates with decision-making and prioritizing, doesn't it? Because if I, if I'm sitting there and I can't focus myself, then I'm going to let whoever has the most energy in the room take over. Mm. So now the, 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 you know, the energizer bunny is going to lead me instead of me leading the bunny. That's a good point. That's a good point. And it, the, some of the leaders that I coach, uh, we talk. We end up around this topic because they do get fatigued. Pe- leaders get fatigued. Mom and dad get fatigued. And and then what happens? You know, perhaps the person who shouldn't be leading actually does start to lead. Good point. That's true. I mean, it's true with teenagers too. Um, you know, it's the end of the year, school year. I've got a bunch of kids, and. I'm exhausted. So they're like, hey, I'm going to stay up late and play this game. And I'm like, whatever. Yep. Whatever. <laughs> Just don't wake me up. But it's like I give up. I give I give in to whoever has the energy, and then we end up going that way. Uh, we're talking with Dan Rockwell from leadershipfreak.wordpress.com. It really is. He's a management consultant and a coach and works with executives in how to uh, be better leaders Go check out the website, leadershipfreak.wordpress.com. We'll take a break, come back. He's going to walk us through some ways to reignite our energy. How do we get our energy back? Dan Rockwell, more on energy right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are trying to get a, a little pick-me-up, a little uh, increase in our energy as just as, as humans, but also as leaders um, and as people that influence others around us. Your energy can lift others, and your passion can become contagious, if you've ever seen that. Who better to teach us about this than Dan Rockwell? Dan is uh, he's an author, he's a writer, he has a blog called Leadership Freak, and it's one of my favorite management blogs. Leadershipfreak.wordpress.com is where you can find out about Dan. Dan is also the co-author of The Character-Based Leader and um, has been ranked as the number 29 of, of the AMA's top 30 leaders in business in 2014. He's he's just a great resource, and we're picking his brain about energy. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for giving us your energy. 
So um, talk to us about uh, – you, you have an offer you're going to give uh, listeners of the show if, they, if they'll go to your, your blog. Talk to us about that. Yes. Yesterday I wrote a post, uh, had a conversation with Ken Blanchard about uh, the re-issue uh, of the one-minute manager. and It's come out again as the new one-minute manager, and they revised it. And huh. I'm giving away 20 copies of that. Wow. If people leave a comment on yesterday's post, so if they go to the blog, today's post has some stuff. I have a little bit of my conversation with Ken uh, on today's blog post. But if they go to yesterday's post... There's a chance. There's a chance there to uh, leave a comment, and then I'm going to randomly p- pick 20 people. That's and great. Receive a copy of the book. You get a copy of the book. That's huge. And uh, I mean, Ken Blanchard. Are you kidding me? He's a guru. He's awesome. He's awesome. He is so awesome. He's the the one minute manager guy. Yeah. How cool is that to just sit and pick his brain? I tell you, you talk about energy. One of the great energy. Uh, increasers in my life hmm. is, uh, or energizers in my life are the conversations that I get to have, in- including this one, Matt, but also, you know, you get to talk to, I get to talk to authors and people like Ken Blanchard and John Maxwell. And yeah. y- these people are so smart and you, know, you, just, you just get stuff from them. It's just awesome. Isn't it interesting that they, um, when they're that, they're that effective, they're that um, understanding and good at what they do, but it's their passion, really, it, that keeps that gives you energy. So any of us that have passion, we can. It's a contagious thing. We can share it. Yeah, one of, one of the great energizers is hang around passionate people versus hang around those energy vampires. They nothing makes them happy. They're always discontent. They're always down. Everything's terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's going to drag anybody down. So it's, hang around some passionate people. It's so true. And and just the the vampire. Everybody out there in listener land, you all have a vampire. So we and we know who they are. The funny thing is, is they may not know who they are. How, 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 what would you suggest we do to, to get some feedback to an energy vampire? Well, my, my first option is to try to avoid them as much as possible. <laughs> Just stay away. Uh, yeah, but, but uh, you know, th- this is true. And sometimes on teams there are people who don't realize that they are downers. And that, I'll tell you what does happen. When you bring up a topic to a team, lots of times the first response to that topic, issue, project, or whatever it is, is negative and explanations about why it won't work. And my recommendation in that context is to go ahead and let people, you know, get that off their system. Don't answer it. Yeah. Don't say, well, yes, it will work. Just go ahead. You know, well, I see. I see what you're saying. I see. And, and then when they're done, say, okay, well, what will work? Uh-huh. What, what happens is now you give them the opportunity to make a little bit of a shift. Now, not everybody does, but um, uh, teams start to learn, you know, okay, Okay, we see. We, we're not going to worry about what doesn't work, and nobody's going to have a big fight about it. Uh-huh. We're just going to try to figure out what does work, and that's an energizing thing too. Maybe just not combating their energy. Just let them kind of spew, and then and then just redirect it. Okay, great. Now that we know what won't work, what do you think would work? And then take yeah, them that way. It's, let's face it. Uh, trying to fix an energy vampire is draining. Sure. Sure. So go go ahead. Say what you want. Okay, I hear you. <laughs> okay. I hear you. I hear you. Yada, great. yada, yada. Now, what are we going to do about it? Right. Oh, that's great. Some other ways that you've put together in, in your blog on energy, seven ways to reignite energy. One of them is you say to go take a gratitude walk. Now, I go walk every day, but what's the gratitude angle? How do you take a gratitude walk? 
This one comes right from John Gordon when we were in our conversation, and I think he, I'm, I think it's in his book as well. Uh, um, and and I, the idea is when I don't know about you, but when I go for a walk, I'm kind of mulling over what I have to do, the next thing, you know, trying to solve a problem, and that's a good thing to do on a walk. And what what John gave me on, on that one particular tip is. In the morning, just go out, and what you're going to do is just be grateful for things. You're not going to try to worry about the day. You're not going to try to plan everything out. You're just going to start the day off, look around, be grateful for what you see, think about what you've accomplished, be grateful for that, and, and then start your day. And it's, it's a pause. It's yeah. a moment where we can just reflect for a little bit. That's great. I always put my headset on and listen to a you know an author or something, but... Maybe it would be more valuable to not fill my head with stuff and instead just go notice and be grateful and be grateful. Mm. Or at least for part of it. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Maybe yeah. for 5 or 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And then, because I'm with you, you know, I, 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 this is the thing, man. I, I, hate, I feel like I'm wasting time. Mm-hmm. So I've got to listen to that book. I have, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. I, <laughs> I hate that. I mean, really, I'm, I'm like, why can't I just... Go on a walk. And we live, I live, or where I'm walking here at Brigham Young University, the most incredible mountain range ever, and um, just a beautiful campus. And yet my head is stirring, thinking about, ooh, that's a great idea that author just brought up. But gratitude's one, one way. Another way you talk about is creating small wins, which is something Stephen Covey always taught. You know, obtain a victory early, and it actually creates energy for the rest of your day. Yeah, that's uh, to me. What's so draining is uh, you keep working at something and you're not making progress. And I think we can actually design life and projects and things that we're working on with our teams around these incremental wins or milestones, and making make sure to take a moment to say, "Hey, check that baby off. That's yeah. good. We're doing good there. And now, what's next? Great." And and just uh, you know, generate some uh, some progress by designing life and projects around these small wins. Uh, that I mean, th- th- when you think about it, that kind of goes back to the to take the gratitude walk because if you don't notice your small wins, then you're not going to notice progress. Right. Right. And it, it, here's the thing, Matt. You know, you you have this big thing out there that you're reaching for, and so often that becomes oppressive. It can't be achieved in the next day or two or week or month. It's this big goal out there that you're really reaching for, and it's so big. If we just would give ourselves permission to take a few steps, you know, what can I do today? And did I do that? Oh, you you did. You 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 stepped toward that goal. Awesome. Congratulations. What are you going to do next? Mm. So true. So good. Um, you bring up one that hits me right between the eyes. Drink more water. One way to reignite energy is drink more water. We're 70% water, not 70% Diet Coke. Because uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm about 90% Diet Coke. Oh, no, no. no. It, it'll, but you're saying it's just drink water and yeah. you feel better doing it anyway. It's good for you, right? Yeah. It does the body it's good. better when you drink water. That's exactly right. I've noticed, though, when I drink water, I actually then do your other advice. I get up and walk two or three minutes to the bathroom. Yes, absolutely. There's a, there's a secondary benefit, isn't there? <laughs> there you, really you, is. I bet you do this. I do it. I put my head down. I get so busy. And then all of a sudden I realize I've really been sitting too long. And there's some research that says, that says sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. That's how bad it is for us. Uh, and I'm so good at it. Isn't that sad, Dan, when like you finally master something and then you find out it's killing you? 
Um, talk about uh, the power nap. Do you, are you a, are you a power napper? When I'm home, now my office is home. When I'm traveling, sometimes it's more difficult time zone issues and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. When I'm home, I'm an early riser. This morning I was up at four o'clock. I had a seven a.m. meeting. I have uh, I had this call. I have eleven. I have an eleven thirty lunch meeting, and after that, I'm going to come home and I'm going to I'm going to crash for like twenty or thirty minutes. Then I'm going to get up and I'm going to hit the rest of the day. That's great. And uh, but it seems like our boss wouldn't like us to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one comes. Uh, John uh, Gordon said to me, "If your boss finds you catching uh, taking a, a power nap, just tell him you were meditating on the mission statement." <laughs> yeah, what's he going to say? <laughs> well, quit doing that. Okay, well, it's your mission. Um, why why do you suggest that writing a thank you note? How does that increase my energy? Yeah, this has to do with our what we're thinking about. I, I'm problem centric. I'm always trying to solve problems and make progress. And you take a minute to force yourself to do this. And uh, the the the. the premier example of this is uh, Doug Conant, the uh, former CEO of Campbell's Soup, who during his 10 years at Campbell's Soup wrote 30,000 handwritten thank you notes. Unbelievable. Isn't that great? Yeah. That is, is, did he write a book with Meta Norgard? I don't know. D- did I? No, did, did he? he? Yes, he did. He did. He wrote a book called Touchpoint. Yes. That yeah. is fantastic. I mean, and think of that, and that gets into another part of energy because, um, and I guess this is important for us to be thinking about, my energy I bring with me, and it influences other people. So even if the energy goes through a note to them, it's it's getting out there. But really, I, I can't, I've got to be careful with who I am and what I'm bringing because I could end up being the vampire, couldn't I? I could end up being the one that didn't send out 30,000 notes, but ended up sending out 30,000 barbs. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and this comes back to always focusing on what's wrong and what's broken. And here's a quick tip for this. Instead of saying what went wrong, say, how can we make something better? Mm. There's just a difference in attitude there. But these interactions, I think, is what you're kind of getting at. The interactions that we have are so important and so powerful. Here's another little tip for you, and that is watch the person you're talking to or as you listen to them. And when their eyes light up, try to figure out what it is that's going on for them and even ask them, hey, I just noticed, you know, you, you just sort of lit up right then. What's going on? What's energizing you? And learn about people and talk about energizing topics. That's powerful. And it also it, it forces you to kind of lose yourself and be present in them, which will give you more power to you know increase motivation in them. That's yeah, huge. Well said. Well said. You also you connect a lot of this to meaning and purpose. So maybe one of the reasons we're low in energy is simply that I'm not I'm not doing my mission. I'm not in my purpose. Yeah. You know, um, we are human beings, not human doings, and our busyness is one of the things, it's so funny, but our busyness causes us to lose connection with our purpose. And it's it's an unfortunate experience. We get exhausted. We forget why we're doing it. Doctors forget why they're engaged in medicine. And managers forget why they're leading their teams. And they just focus on what they're doing. Uh, So, yeah, connecting with purpose and thinking about, you know, what am I really trying to accomplish here is very useful. And and really, it seems like, 
it's it's what connects you to the bigger energy source, right? Of your purpose or your your mission and to not have that, then you you're just probably, you know, you're just rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, I mean you're hitting you're hitting on something that depends depending on the people in your audience. There's a faith component, there's a spiritual component to what purpose is about. And as somebody who's not necessarily a person of faith still has this idea of purpose, mm-hmm. and it fits very broadly into the whole spiritual realm of life. And yeah. what am I all about? And and, and like yeah, so you're contributing. You're giving something back to the world instead of just taking, yeah. or or just being a used up clod, right? I mean, it's <laughs> I mean, part of this is just simply if if we're running out of energy, it's really telling us something about ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and losing touch with what it's all about, losing touch with the basics. Uh, my wife said to me a week or two ago, I was kind of stressed out. There was a lot going on. And she says, well, what are you doing differently? <laughs> and in the end, it was just the pressures that I was feeling. I'm doing this very, you know, very same. I, I write every day. I go and speak. I do coaching. I was doing the same things, but I was losing touch with really what I was all about. And that's when I started getting stressed out. And Oh, you know, I don't mm-hmm. really like this and that kind of thing. Which is probably when you get sick. And, and, and it's interesting. You could almost just see that, you know, you do that. That, that just might be a moment in your life, Dan. But... Turn that into a week, turn that into a month of that, a year of that, and now all of a sudden that's your life. Yep. It's yeah. true. It, yeah. it can happen to us. Very sincere, hardworking people, they just go through the motions day after day. And and I, I think back to those years when I was just doing that kind of thing, and I, I wish I could get them back because I could do the same thing and have so much more joy, mm-hmm. so much more energy, but still do the same thing, but I got lost in it. Mm. It's uh, it's such a subtle little thing. Again, we're talking with Dan Rockwell uh, from the website leadershipfreak.wordpress.com. Again, he's he's given us a great opportunity to uh, go to his website, and if we look up his, it was yesterday's blog entry, right? It called, That's and right. it was was it one minute to make a difference? It is one minute to make a difference is the title of the post. One minute to make a difference. If you go there and you make a comment then uh, you um, just about the post and then you'll have an opportunity to get in and have a and be part of getting uh, or a drawing of 20 books that Dan's going to be giving away. Um, Well, Dan, we appreciate you. If we had to if you had to leave us with one thought, what would you say is the one thought that is the key to reigniting energy? You know, I for me personally, because I'm achiever, I think the one thought for me that is most energizing is make make some progress. Every day I write a blog post, and that's an achievement for me. I get that baby checked off. I feel good. I'm energized, and I go out and I do something else. So for me personally, because I like to be a doer, uh, give yourself some credit. Check, check a few things off. Create some small wins. That's great. Achieve. Get some progress. Well, Dan, sure. appreciate you, my friend. Keep up the great work. We'll hey, thank uh, you. we'll have you back. We'll go again on his website, uh, leadershipfreak.wordpress.com. So many great blogs there that uh, it'll just help you. It'll help you in your life, in your career, and uh, I think also just in your spirit. We're going to take a break uh, again. You can find um, information of, of for where to go by just going to Doctor Matt Show. And uh, that's our our Twitter handle, and you can go um, check out that link there. 
Good stuff. We'll take a break. Come back to a little Coach's Corner as we wrap up this hour of the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, energy really is such an, an interesting thing. And as uh, we just do a, a quick little coach's corner here, you know, however you want to look at energy, um, it's your ability, it's your power to get stuff done. And everybody has different ways of trying to get their body to work for them. I really am big in believing that everybody's everybody's a little bit different too, right? So you need to probably just get into yourself and understand you've got this generator that is you, your body, and its job is to go create the energy for you to fulfill your mission, your purpose. Everybody on this earth, I believe, has something unique to offer. They have a song. They have music that they're supposed to bring to this world and if you don't have the energy to bring it, I, I really, this sounds weird, but I don't, I don't think it matters why you don't have the energy. You still aren't bringing your music. So we could spend hours explaining why we don't exercise, explaining why we don't sleep, why we don't take care of ourselves. We could explain why we don't um, understand our mental health better. But in the end, if we don't, we don't. So I would, if you're going to work on your energy, could I just suggest spend less time making up the story about it and spend more time just doing it different and figuring it out? Every single time we tell a story or an excuse or a rationale or a reason why we don't take care of our generator, our energy creator, then you're just you're just facilitating and prolonging the inevitable lack of change. Instead, let's just do something different today. One of the ideas, let's just do one of the ideas that uh that Dan had brought up. Go on a walk of gratitude. Get up and, you know, and regularly walk around your office and and take a break now and then. Get a better meal, go take a nap. Figure out your mental health. Find out what's going on. You have to crack your code. No one else is here to crack the code for you. And I I bring it up a lot on this show because I see it so much in my own coaching practice. Everybody has an excuse for why they're not getting stuff done. In the end, it doesn't matter why you didn't. Your lack of progress does not equate to the great feelings of being able to get done what you need to get done. So don't spend the time being frustrated by it. Don't spend the time chasing it and beating it up and being mad about it. And don't spend the time talking about how hard it is. Instead, use all of that little bit of energy that you have to go do something different and get something done. So answer the question, what's the most important thing you need to get done this hour that would make the greatest impact in your life. Think about it. What is the most important thing you need to do this hour to have the greatest impact on your life? And just go do that. 
Oh, I know, but it's so hard. Shh, don't talk about how hard it is. Quit telling me how hard it is. That just reinforces to your subconscious that you're not going to do this. So I, I just suggest, instead of just making a huge list of 100 things you need to accomplish today, go ask the question, what's the most important thing I can do right now for the next half hour to have the greatest impact? And then commit to go do that. And if we could do that right when we get up in the morning, we'll have a victory very early in the morning. And when you have a victory early, it begets more victories throughout the day. What's the most important thing you can do at lunch to have the greatest impact during that time? It might be eat. It might be go sleep under a tree for 20 minutes. It might be go on a gratitude walk. It might be staying at work and finishing so you can leave early and go to your son's graduation. What's the most important thing you can do on your drive home, while you're driving home, listening to this podcast? Ask yourself, what's the most important thing I can do when I get home as a father to have the greatest impact on my family? Don't choose 15 things and don't choose the biggest thing. Choose one thing. Now, when you pull in your driveway, you're still going to notice your lawn needs to be mowed. But if you've also got the idea that I need to walk in that house happy and positive and hug my kids and thank my wife and then go do that. You know, eat dinner half hour later, get on your Bermuda shorts and go mow the lawn. Then when you're done with the lawn and you're putting the lawnmower away, what's the most important thing I can do tonight? Now it's eight o'clock to have the greatest impact on my family and just start doing it one hour at a time. Start doing it one goal at a time. And ask this question, what's the most important thing you can do today to improve the energy of your life? I need to quit drinking so much caffeine. I need to quit doing this. I need to start doing this. And choose whatever it is and just start it today. It's a simple little idea, right? And the change doesn't have to be dramatic. Just a little here and a little there and a little here and a little there. Pretty simple. You know what, folks? It always is. But simple isn't always what we do, right? That's the Coach's Corner, my friends. Again, we appreciate you listening. We couldn't have a show without you. And I just uh, would ask you to share these shows. Go to our, uh, go to iTunes, go to TuneIn, look us up. Go, go tweet us. Go find us on byuradio.org. Tons of ways to find us and download us. But start passing it along. The more you pass it along, so many shows you could send to a friend and maybe lift their day up, maybe change their energy. We'll take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side, doing what we can every uh, day, three hours a day here on the show to give you the tools, the information, the latest, the greatest, the stuff you need to know to make sure you live healthy, happy lives. Today, no exception. How many times have you listened to the news and you hear them talking about Iraq, right, and the war going on there and the Shia and the Sunni, and you're like, what? 
what are they talking about? Well, today, my friends, we are going to uh, break that up for you and give you a little bit of um, Middle Eastern history, a little bit of Middle Eastern uh, education. Uh, Ted Ellsworth will be joining us. He is a Mid-Eastern Studies undergraduate student here at Brigham Young University who is seriously, he is in the know of all the people at uh, at BYU that we talked to looking to find somebody that could walk us through really what's going on in the Middle East, especially when it comes to some of the tribal um, and religious uh, wars and religious contention that's been going on. The name that kept coming up was Ted Ellsworth, an undergraduate student. So uh, hang on to your hat. We'll be talking to him in a few minutes. He's going to try to clear it up for us. Uh, the Sunni, the Shia, hopefully keeping it a little straight for us. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But before we do that, um, let's first go to Terry South, who's also going to, I hope, clean up what's going on in the news, make it life easier for us. We'll try. Okay. Most, most of the time, it's what makes it news is because it's not super clean and easy to uh, it's kind of messy to understand. We'll, we'll get into a religious rights versus rights to bear arms story. Okay. Kind of interesting here. In a lawsuit that brings together the Second Amendment and the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act, an Amish man filed a federal lawsuit in Pennsylvania last week because he wants to buy a gun without the required photo ID. And because getting that photo ID would violate his religious beliefs, ah. we have a conflict. <sighs> this is where you can't make policies for certain. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. Who shouldn't be able to get an ID? Come on. Well, right. the Amish. <laughs> they don't believe in taking pictures. Right. So but you have it. But he wants a gun. Right. He's a citizen. Right. He has that right. But it... If to follow through with the the rules, he has to violate his religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, so here's the problem. This seems like a no-brainer. Andrew Hertzler, according to the suit, is from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and is an active and practicing member of the community. His parents, grandparents, and siblings are all active practicing Amish. And he has a sincere and held religious belief that prevents him from knowingly and willingly having his photograph taken and stored. Mm. But Hertzer's humility caused a problem when in June he tried to buy a gun from a Pennsylvania dealer using a non-photo state-issued identification card. This wasn't enough, according to the dealer. Hertzler was told he needed a picture ID. Hertzler was then caught in a catch-22. To enjoy his rights under the Second Amendment, he would have to violate his faith or vice versa. Here we go. It could not stand. Mr. Hertzler confronts uh, Hobson's choice, either forego his constitutional right to keep and bear arms in defense of himself and his home or violate his religion, the suit read. Yet, the exercise of one constitutional right cannot be contingent upon the violation or waiver of another. Hmm. This is where where the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in. Maybe. Because it it seems like to me there's a lot of things we understand about the Amish right like do they need a picture id to drive their carriage on the road apparently he has a non picture exactly. id that so someone figured out a workaround for this right. situation and you would think in lancaster pennsylvania they've probably have a lot of workarounds for the Amish population or i don't know if he's from lancaster but he is. in the end it seems like we just need a workaround 
So workaround. Uh, Jimmy, we need a workaround here. <laughs> Jimmy's got to bring a workaround. So by knowingly and willingly sitting for a photograph, even for a state issue ID document, Mr. Hertzler would be violating his religion by taking a graven image of himself, the suit read. Hmm. Thus, Mr. Hertzler's religious freedom has been substantially burdened in order to exercise his fundamental right to possess a firearm for defense of himself and his home. The government is requiring him to violate a major tenet of his sincerely held religious beliefs. Yeah. Work around. This is a hard one because I guess in the end, this shows us that you can't just make a policy. No. The policies are going to come down to individuals. And by the way, you now know that everybody that want every terrorist, every uh, you know extremist is now going to become Amish. Because you get a gun without an ID. As soon as we do the workaround, they're like, okay. In another story, completely unrelated, has nothing to do with that one. Okay. Chimpanzees that have lived for years in a Dutch safari park adopted a Scottish accent after they moved to a new home in an Edinburgh zoo alongside nine local chimps, researchers argue. What? It has a, it has a, it's a monkey, but it has picked up. So chimpanzees, not monkeys. Sorry, chimpanzees. Yes. chimpanzees. By the way, it is Dutch, and didn't aren't the, the Amish from Dutch heritage? Okay, so there's so there's there a is connection. there is. A, don't say there's not. I'm sorry, I when there's an obvious connection. Overlook the connection. Okay. So you have chimpanzees that live for years in a Dutch safari park have <laughs> adopted a Scottish accent as now they have moved to Scotland and mm. been amongst local chimps. What 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 does a chim- what does a Scottish chimpanzee accent sound like? I'm not like? sure. I would love to hear that. The Dutch apes would make high pitched grunts, and when they saw apples, the local Edinburgh chimps, by contrast, made a distinctive lower pitched grunt. <laughs> it's evidence the scientists involved say that the apes have accents that vary from place to place, just like us. It took several years for the the expat apes to pick up the local dialect because of the two groups didn't mix much when they first arrived. But as they continued to to mix and they became part of each other's, as it says, they got along famously. 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 <clears throat> but after three years, the two groups buried their initial distrust of each other, got along better. In what is billed as a breakthrough in a study of language, the scientists say the Dutch apes adopted the same style of grunting as that of their hosts. Man. And it's one of the first recorded incidents that they can say that there's an accent, and when you move to a new place, you adopt that accent. It's like now, Hillary it Clinton. With, it happens with humans, Yeah, but now they're saying it can happen in the animal well, world. Well, Hillary Clinton does it every time she goes to the South. Yes. So she's really a senator, ex-senator from New York. Lived in Arkansas, but when she goes down south, she sounds like a southern belle. She does. But she doesn't grunt like a chimp. She goes up north, sounds like a, a northerner. Yankee goes northerners. Goes down south, <laughs> puts on that southern drawl and all that charm. Now. I don't believe that. You don't believe this at no. all? This isn't a thing? No. This is just animals grunting? Right. Okay. I think I think what it is, now, the, the researchers... Are are they're um, sensitized to it because they hear the accent? It's self fulfilling. Study is continuing. Yeah, but uh, we may find at some point that chimpanzees can have an accent. Now, <laughs> when a human yeah. goes to a goes from wherever they live, whatever region they live, and move to a different region has a different accent, and they adopt that accent or regional colloquialisms. Yeah, and the you go to Texas and start saying y'all for some reason. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is that a sign of weak-mindedness? No. Or are you just incorporating your new You don't want to die. Is that what it is? It's your, your body. It's your, yeah, every human wants to fit in. They don't want to die. I mean, you could get the chimpanzee idea if they were going to Canada, because then it would just be like a grunt, eh? <laughs> grunt, eh? <laughs> but it's different. It's totally different. Um, but yeah, it's just survival. You don't okay. want to die. So every human wants to fit in. So you try to pick up, and I guess every chimp does too. Apparently. I don't know. I don't know if I trust the research. I mean, it would. they need to do it in Canada. Okay. Canada is where we're going to really find or the information. Or Texas, because yeah? then you get the y'all. You get the y'all. Ugh, y'all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's probably not that simple. No, probably not. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a linguist, so don't quote me on it. <laughs> anyway, see, that's the deal. That's why it's a perfect segue to our, our next guest. Ted Ellsworth will be joining us. He's a Middle Eastern Studies undergraduate student at BYU. He's going to help us understand Sunnis versus Shia. You hear about that all the time, these kind of tribal, these religious, you know, they're just divisions in beliefs and and um, and religious views uh, that are going on in the Middle East. They tend to be driving a lot of the problems you hear going on over there. So who better to help us through it than one of the great, fabulous undergraduate students here at Brigham Young University. Stick with us, folks. This guy knows what he's talking about. This is an interview we did a few months ago. And I wanted to bring it back so that we could make sure we're getting as much out of it as we can. Stick with us. Ted Ellsworth, up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, for decades, an ancient religious divide has fueled conflict in the Middle East. Struggles between Sunni and Shia forces have led to a Syrian civil war that you hear about all in the news right now. Russia's involved and America's still involved. This violence poses a threat to the surrounding countries and reaches far beyond uh, what it used to even. What are the differing beliefs between the Shia and the Sunnis that has caused so much conflict? And is there any hope? For a resolution, well, we went looking for an expert and found one. We um, are going to go replay an interview right now with Ted Ellsworth. The interview was originally held back in June of this year. Now, Ted is an interesting, uh, he's an interesting, uh, I guess, expert, because when we went and talked to all the Middle Eastern experts here at Brigham Young University, instead of bringing a faculty member, they said, you got to talk to Ted Ellsworth, who is a graduate student that studies it uh, in depth. And um, my very, very first question to Ted was simply this. So you're a graduate student, and you're studying what? So I'm actually an undergraduate student, okay. uh, double majoring in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies. Are you really? Yes. Now, why? <laughs> it's um, so complicated. That's hard stuff. Yeah. I, I fell in love with politics in high school, and that love carried over. And on a whim and a recommendation of a friend, I decided to switch into Arabic and Did fell really? in love with it. Are you going on? Are you going to go get a PhD? What are you thinking? That's the plan. So my hope is to go to University of Michigan after this yeah. to get a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies and then and move then on from there. Move on and check it out. So help us understand they're Sunnis and they're Shias. Also, they call them Shiites, right? Correct. Help us understand what – because this to me is the tension, right, in the Middle East is between these two – I guess are they called sects? Yeah. 
So it's tempting to think of the two organizations of Sunni and Shia as these homogenous groups, but they're actually quite diverse. You yeah. have a number of different Shia organizations. You have Twelvers, Sevener Shias. Mm. You have Zaydis who are you know, the product of modern-day Houthis in Yemen. So you see a lot of mobility of different Sunni and Shia groups, but ultimately the rift stems from a crisis of succession in 632 CE, right following the prophet Muhammad's death. So when Muhammad died... Somebody needed to succeed him as the prophet, the leader. One group wanted wanted to kind of go on the bloodline, so it should follow the bloodline of the prophet, right? A, a cousin, and one wanted it to follow just a leader, a a, a leader that was um, one of his contemporaries. Right. So there's this principle in Islam called ishtima, which means consensus. And that principle of consensus, the community gathered together and were trying to determine who would be the most rightful successor. And that's actually one of the largest theological rifts between Sunnis and Shias. Hmm. You have Sunnis who argue that rather than a need for a continued successor to the prophet spiritually, there was a need for someone to guide the religious and political community, but no longer a need for the prophet. Okay. So that's where the caliph steps in. Shias differ from that equation slightly. They believe in what's called the imamate. Now, the imam is somebody who receives special authority and can receive special knowledge from God that is not accessible to everyday individuals. So the imam is a special individual directly tied to the lineage of the Prophet Muhammad, capable Mm. of interceding even on behalf of the Shia in the face of God. So the Shia basically thought the, the kind of the concept of prophet would continue through an imam. Yeah, they believe it's slightly different from a prophet, it's a but little, like a, the yeah. concept of continued religious, religious leader. leader, yeah, versus a caliph, which was which was um, like a, a, a government that was religious, correct, but not necessarily an imam, not run by an imam, right? Which is interesting because ISIS is trying to find found a new caliphate, right? Which is also interesting because ISIS. Oh, I guess ISIS, they are Sunnis. Right. So ISIS is the product of years of what's known as a Salafi sect of Islam. And Salafi argues for a return to the basic principles of the Golden Age, those periods in between the four rightly guided caliphs, as they're called. And so it's this very regressive ideology return to this very basic primordial understanding based upon Hadith and the Quran that argues for very strict interpretation, a declaration of apostasy for anyone whose balls outside of that realm, as well as a concept of dynamic jihad and military aggression. Wow. So here's here's the deal then. So if you think of the Middle East and just pretty much you could name any country in the Middle East and there's going to be some division of Sunni Sufi, right? It'll probably like a like for example, Saudi Arabia would be Sunni or yeah, Sunni. So not Sufi, sorry, Sunni and Shia, right? So Saudi Arabia is Sunni. Is that right? Yes. Um, Iran, it would be more Shia. Correct. Iran and Saudi Arabia don't like each other. Right. For that very reason. Yeah. Right? Well, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of other reasons as well, but it's really compounded by that interesting relationship between a very, very Sunni Islamic state and a very, very Shia Islamic state. Isn't that interesting? So then you've got other countries, Iraq, and Iraq would have about 60, 65% Shia, 30, 35% or whatever um, Sunni. So that was, that was 
destabilized in the Iraqi war. Right. And I guess that was one of the issues. So what ended up causing the destabilization? Because this seemed to – for 1,400 years, this has been going on. But it seems like it's really – I mean, it's probably had gone up and down and had problems over the years. But it seems like in the last 30 years or so, or 40, it's it's really gotten worse. Absolutely. What's caused that? There are a couple of factors that explain why tensions are rising. The first is increasing Iranian regional influence. In the past, Iran has chosen to mainly backed off, but recently it's become more aggressive in funding foreign militias throughout the Middle East. You have Hezbollah Mm -hmm. in Lebanon. And then in Iraq, as you mentioned, you have the destabilization of the regime. Now, you have Saddam Hussein, who's this Ba'athist Sunni leader, who's issuing this vigorous campaign of repression against the Shia majority in order to sustain his power. But when he's overthrown, you have this transitional transition of power where a new constitution is drafted. Sunnis are marginally excluded from the drafting of that constitution. And she has come into power, but they turn that on its head yeah. as a vigorous campaign of re-repression to essentially pay it back. So Maliki issues this very ethnically based system of policies yeah. to entrench and oppress Sunnis. So the, the irony, of course, is with organizations like ISIS, they're a combination of groups of Islamists who were vigorously oppressed by Saddam Hussein and Ba'athists. So you have both sides turning over now. So as a result of years of sectarian strife, Iranian regional influence, you have mobile militias that weren't there before, regional contestations for power. Interesting. Now you've had – so when Iran is, is uh, and Hezbollah are out supporting terrorist groups, I assume they're supporting Shia terrorist groups. Right. They're supporting Shia militia groups. Shia so. militia groups that would inevitably be fighting against Sunnis. Right. So, you know, so you've got and, and you need you need all of these uh, kind of uh, militias or or uh, jihadists or whatever. We're call, what would we call uh, a Sunni? What's a Sunni militia group? Um, so. I guess the technical term would be terrorist organization. Okay. Both argue for their own independent interpretations of jihad and mm-hmm. have their own, I guess, agenda. So this is and it's such an interesting thing because we always kind of knew that we were, as the Americans or the Westerners, we were always the infidels in relation to their aggression and terrorism. We're obviously we're enemies. We were. But they were also enemies with each other. They also – Sunnis think that uh, the Shias aren't quite – righteous enough, and the Shias think the Sunnis aren't righteous enough. Right? Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. So they're already warring with each other, and they already see each other as infidels. Right. So, and not everyone feels that way. Yeah, There's no, a lot yeah, of, no, like, yeah, the active support, but the active militia groups are vigorously engaged in a process of issuing fatwas against the mm-hmm. others. Probably. Isn't that, it's such an interesting thing, because when we sit there and somebody is all, yeah, they're Muslim, and there's all this kind of anti-Muslim movement, there's very few Muslims that probably are deeply involved in all of this, right? Right, absolutely. They just, they're kind of just, they just believe in Muhammad. Right. <laughs> and they just want to believe in their God, or their prophet and their God, um, Allah, and yet then there's these certain percentage. What percentage would you say are really active in either Shia or Sunni and in, are active in this division and fight day in, day out? That is a good question, it's which I don't really have an answer That's for good. you. Well, no, I'm, I'm just testing you. Come on. <laughs> I mean, you know so much more than the rest of us, Ted. Again, we're talking with Ted Ellsworth, who's a BYU uh, student, 
but is um, really, truly an expert in this Shia and Sunni world. And he's trying to help us understand the Middle East. We're going to take a break and come back. I've got a lot of other questions because when we send democratization into this world and we open up Iraq and we democratize it and say, what we're now going to do is let you vote and have the freedom to vote, all they're hearing is, oh, great, um, majority rules. But if you're in the minority in any of these countries, which could be either Sunnis or Shias, democracy doesn't sound like a good idea. So no wonder we get a lot of pushback. We're going to continue this discussion as we talk with Ted Ellsworth from BYU. Uh, We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're taking on a really big subject today, and if you've had too many trans fats this morning, you're probably not going to remember any of this. We just learned that. If you eat too many trans fats, it impacts your memory. But uh, shake it off for a minute because we are in the middle of a lesson. And again, I don't even want to pretend like I have a clue because I've just, all I've done is study and, you know, in and on and off for the last few years. Not in depth, but Sunnis, Shias. You've heard the terms. They're two major, major, uh, um, I guess, sects of the Muslim belief system. And Sunnis and Shias are basically battling each other. Joining us today is Ted Ellsworth, a BYU uh, student, but scholar, really, and um, in fact, when we called the department of, uh, I think, Near Eastern Studies and all of these different studies or departments looking for somebody, Ted is the one they referred us to, which is pretty awesome. So, Ted, when Ph.D. faculty are saying, you got to talk to Ted, <laughs> Ted's the guy that can sort out the Shia Sunni thing. That's that's quite a compliment to you. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, in a nutshell, Sunnis. Basically, eighty-five uh, percent of Muslim world would be would probably fall under a Sunni belief system. Now, again, none of this is just a straight line. Sure, a lot of different sects, a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different, which would happen in any world. The Christian world's been broken into how many churches, how many different beliefs, more liberal views, more conservative views. The same thing has happened in Islam, and um, the the eighty-five uh, percent of those of the of the Muslim world would probably affiliate with a Sunni belief system, which is kind of, if I'm getting it right, Ted, um, just let the governments, that's where the caliphs came, the caliphate came, just kind of follow a basic government belief system that's Muslim oriented. Right. One of the biggest financiers, I'm assuming, of the Sunni world would be Saudi Arabia because these people need money, right? And so... Saudis had the money and kind of the, the is that was that is that the center of the Sunni world? It, it's certainly a large part of it. Saudi Arabia has a couple of ways in which it has a dramatic influence in the region. The first is that it has large oil exports, yeah. which means that you have this very high level rentier state, which means that most of its money is being obtained through 
oil rents, which it's sending to other countries. It's not trickling down to its population that it's using to, one, export large amounts of ideological propaganda right. across the Middle East. But you also have monetary support in favor of campaigns that are beneficial to Saudi Arabia. So Saudis or, or Sunnis are are going to try to prop up Sunnis in the, all of the other countries in the Middle East. Yeah. I mean you you have some cultural, political, nationalistic things that get in the way of yeah, that. Yeah. But that aside, you do have this natural Sunni alliance between the states. So that's the Sunni side. The Shia side, um, when the Prophet Muhammad died, they thought the lineage should stay very much in the bloodline and not that we needed another prophet like Muhammad, but that we needed spiritual direction and leadership, imams, and that then was a big part of um, Iran. And, and so Iran tends to be a very Shia strong country that's gaining influence in the Middle East. But as it gains influence, it tends to gain it at the expense of Sunni power. So this is really a power battle between Sunni and Shia. Absolutely. You have two regional hegemons who have you know, you know, very strong, stable states moving forward and trying to yeah. gain regional influence. And then Iran has a revolution which which basically has the the shahs and the imams taking over. Is that accurate? So 1979 you have the shah who was backed by the United States overthrown in this revolution which was led out by a whole swath of both secular yeah. and islamist. And then in a, a turn that nobody really saw you had this co-option of islamic revolutionaries. So just before that you have Ayatollah Khomeini issue this fatwa. And in that edict, he declares that not only should members of the Islamic faith be seeking revolution, but an Islamic revolution to liberate themselves from all sorts of freedom. And then you have that manifest itself in Iran. Interesting. And I mean, and, and to the death of Jimmy Carter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Politically. Um, isn't that interesting? And then uh, that, so that all went down. And then, then the Iraqi war, um, Saddam was a Sunni? Yeah, a Bathist Sunni. A Bathist Sunni, not not meaning he was well cleaned. Correct. What what was a bat what's a Bathist? So the members of the Bathist party were particularly three things. They were secular, nationalist, and socialist. And so he wasn't really a religious leader. He right. was a secular politician leader. Absolutely. And but apparently they thought had weapons of mass destruction. The United States went in, but he was also oppressing Kuwait. Right. And the United States goes in, destroys the system, gets rid of this uh, the um, this authoritarian regime, which all these authoritarian regimes kept all, most of this in check through the Middle East, right? Then when the authoritarian regime started falling, Libya, Gaddafi, all of these regimes that started falling – it kind of left it game on for the Shias and the Sunnis to start fighting again. Right. It, it revealed all of these fractures within society that were maintained. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that weird? You needed almost an authoritarian regime to keep things in check. I mean, it was still oppressive. And that's who yeah, – that was the mass destruction that everyone was afraid of with Saddam is he'd, he would be going against the Shias. He'd be just killing the Shias. Is that right? Yeah, there were a lot of moving targets as yeah. to what what was going on with Saddam and the ultimate objective and fear, why we were afraid of his regime. But but once in we the long term, it, 
we just stayed Once alive. he left, the country broke out into civil war a few years later. It was never able to fully recover from that civil war. A new political series of elections installed a leader who simply just reversed the cycle and issued mass repressive policies, further alienating Sunnis. Yeah. It's for those reasons that we can attribute the growth of ISIS throughout the region. So we're, we're in a quagmire that that really – if we just stayed out of it, it would get ugly no matter what we do, right? I mean, but this and this isn't just Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia. This is Syria who had Bashar uh, – what, what was his name? Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad who's still in power but – and the Saudi – and he's a Sunni? He is an Alawite, which is a minority faction which is a – derived from Shiism combined with some elements of pre-Islamic religions and oh, Christianity. Man. Ted, you're killing me. <laughs> now you're making it even harder. But now what was happening, help me understand this, Iran now is sending their surrogates, Saudi sends their surrogates, and there's wars going on in for Syria between these two Shia Sunni powers yeah. to basically fix Syria and see who's going to end up owning Syria. <laughs> Right. So Syria has become an effectual proxy battle. Usually in – according to political science literature, when you look at civil conflict, civil conflicts don't last that long unless there are extraneous factors which right. make them last longer. And in the case of Syria, the large factor is gain a decisive victory because you have so many foreign powers in place. So you have Saudi oh, okay. Arabia, which is actively backing the Islamic front. You have Syria, who's behind and – backed by the Iranian regime as well as members of Hezbollah on the Lebanese border actively fighting against ISIS. And you have all of these different cleavages. You have al-Nusra fighting ISIS and Hezbollah and all these different organizations caught in the crossfire vying for authority within the Syria. Recently, we're hearing news about Yemen. And right. now Yemen's involved. But So almost every war, every breakout, Lebanon you're hearing about, Turkey. And remember in the, in the Iraqi war, we wanted to put our planes into Turkey. But then all and Turkey was willing, I think, to let us stage our planes there. But I mean, again, that creates a major fight in this Sunni Shia battle because now Turkey was supporting. But Turkey's probably more a secular country, right? Right. Than it is a religious kind of um, system. Anyway, what do we? Where do we go with all of this? This is a battle that's gone on fourteen hundred years. That the average, I would bet, politician doesn't have a clue or fully get. The ones that are all briefed, I'm sure they do. I'm, I mean, I truly believe they understand a lot. But this is a quagmire. Right. And so what, what do we need to know? And Because and that, that, this is the other reason why they don't like us. And this is the other reason why, to some degree, democracy is a weird concept for them. Because this is about numbers, right? Sure. So what, what should we do? Well, I think that there are a couple of things to keep in mind when evaluating and kind of structuring policy towards the Middle East. First, it's tempting to think of American side democracy as yeah. being the, the fit all for the Middle East. But that's not necessarily true. For example, if you look at Tunisia, Tunisia's had three successful democratic transitions since its yeah. up, uprisings in 2011. That's largely been as a result of its Islamic party, Ennahda, which has continually been involved in the leadership process, the drafting of the constitution, stepped out of power in favor of a secular party, which, you know, was concerning. So you kind of have to shift your understanding and focus of what democracy should or should not be. But understanding those cleavages within the Middle East is important because 
too often media representations depict the Middle East and particularly the Islamic community as this very homogenous yeah, entity. Right. Everyone's One the entity. same and they all hate America. But, you know, both of those claims are absolutely absurd. You you have a large degree of sectarianism and infighting and cooperation among different groups. But understanding how these different groups operate, but also importantly, understanding how that religious contestation intersects with political and cultural and social norms. So with Iran and Saudi Arabia, we're not just talking about infueling sectarian conflict for the sake of sectarianism, but you have alliances which are obtuse to sectarianism. For example, Houthi support by Iran doesn't make sense religiously, but right. it does make sense politically. So it really does require that if we want to be serious about the Middle East and develop effective policies for the region, yeah. we need to start breaking it down more and be more open and honest about the fact that just like in the United States, how everything isn't homogenous, how there isn't simply, you know, we have 14 Republican candidates. Right. For North Carolina, you know, there's a large cleavage in American society too. We need to be more aware of those in the Middle East. No, that's huge. And it's, again, it's not like, it's almost like we would think, well, why wouldn't all the Shias just move to Iran? And why wouldn't all the, Sufi, the Sunnis just move? But the reality is there's whatever, 15 countries in the Middle East or whatever the number is with a disproportionate – and every one of them's got a disproportionate cut of of the Shia and the Sunni. So every country has its own battle inherent along with everything else going on in the country, along with just power struggles, financial struggles – all the other stuff going on. So Absolutely. it's so much more complicated. One of the things we were talking about, though, and sadly, where they all unite is in hatred of Israel almost, right? I mean, again, and there are still Muslims that love – Sure. That don't hate Israel. But um, where they – where these the, – the kind of extreme terrorist sides of the, of the Sunnis and the Shias do tend to align um, or ally is against Israel. Right. So you have kind of this pan-Islamizing effect when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And a lot of that is predicated upon, you know, this narrative that's spun throughout the Middle East, which has its merits of, you know, Palestinian people who have, you know, were in the land, lost a lot of the land and, you know, yeah. continued years of conflict between the two. And it's a way of mobilizing the population. It's a common narrative that everyone can get behind. It's a way to build unity among you know, and cooperative endeavors among states, particularly within states, among religious groups. It's something that everyone can get behind. Yeah. When you when you then think of something like the Saudi prince or the Saudi king coming to America and being praised by the Bushes back in the day. Right. Or and loved and beloved, you also then could understand why Iran and the Shias and the Ayatollah would be so frustrated. Meanwhile, flip the flip the game, and now with President Obama, maybe on the verge of creating some new agreement with Iran, you now have the Saudis that won't even come to certain meetings anymore with the president. So, what's your take on the the deal with Iran, and, and what do you sense that's going to do to this whole situation? Yeah. So. The deal with Iran is really interesting because, as you said, so our relationship with Saudi Arabia was born out of a couple of things. It was born out of a recognition of mutual oil gains, yeah. but particularly it was beneficial during the Cold War as a buffer against Soviet expansion. 
And so that relationship had a lot of strategic importance, but as time has evolved, that strategic necessity of having a good relationship with Saudi Arabia has decreased. Yeah. And now it's, it's still a valuable ally, but its strategic necessity is diminishing. At the same time, however, now you have Iran, which for, the, for one of the first times in history has a moderate president, Hassan Rouhani, who is advocating for open diplomatic talks with the United Mm. States, and he's not being checked back by the supreme leader. So he's able to go in. The IAEA is going in conducting these expansions. So, of course, Saudi Arabia is going to be freaking out because they think Uh there's this other regional power which could not only grow economically and remove those obstacles to economic growth, but if they have those funds, how are they going to continue to expand their military propaganda and development throughout the Middle East. It's a perfect counterbalance to how Saudi Arabia has always operated. They've always been able to operate without any sort of real penalty within the region. But now there's contestation with this nuclear deal. uh, An open deal with Iran means a moderated open Iran internationally. Oh my heavens! So I mean, oh, this see, this is where it gets this is where it gets crazy, right? Um, And then one more question I got to ask you is. We also, though, kind of need the Americans do, especially if we're not going to keep putting troops into the Middle East to fight. We need surrogates to be fighting for us. So the idea and and Iran's willing to go do some of that fighting in certain ways. But so Saudis are willing to fight in certain ways. Um, So in a way, we need them. We kind of need them both, don't we? Right. To fight different angles at different times and in different countries. Right. And and really, without them being involved in stabilizing this, which is almost in a weird way, it's almost like saying, let's kind of go back to authoritarian-ish means to kind of restabilize. Right. I think that understanding and evaluating the international politics requires a view of pragmatism that isn't so idealized. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, there are a lot of challenges in the Middle East that require sometimes making cooperative endeavors with people that we like, and sometimes it forces us to make agreements with those that we don't. But a stable Middle East will require that active agreements are actively sought, power-sharing agreements are actively sought, and that some recognition ought to be better paid to what Vali Nasser, who is probably the foremost expert on the Sunni-Shia conflict, noted as the conflicts of the 21st century that will continue to emerge mm. will be based upon the crucible of the Shia in Iran's arising. Interesting. Man. Well, I think I think you're fascinating, Ted. I mean, to think that you're an undergrad student about to be done, that's amazing because you know a lot, my friend. Thank you. And so keep studying. Go get your doctorate so you can change the world and teach a million more people uh, everything you know. Uh, Ted Ellsworth is his name. Um, and He's a great resource. Ted, is there is there any way uh, – how could people contact you? Any way – I mean you probably don't want to give your email out because that would just create chaos. So if you want to get a hold of Ted, just just come, come – just go talk to us on the uh, Dr. Matt show um, and we'll get information so you can talk to Ted Ellsworth. Appreciate your help here, my friend. You, you really did. You, you cleared up a lot. Thank you for having me. Well done. We're going to take a break and uh, let you all, you know, go soak it all in. We'll come back to a quick coach's corner and uh, just try to understand what's really going on here. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, you got it? Now we fixed it, right? <laughs> it's it's chaos, isn't it? It's, it's chaotic. And so th- this is a really weird case where the enemy of your enemy is your friend. So in a weird way right now, the United States, our, our avowed enemy for years, Iran, is now kind of becoming our friend. Saudi Arabia, who's always been our friend, you know, recently— it's also our friend. But what's happening is, and, I, and again, I'm not a political expert, but I think what's happening is our leadership has realized there's no stabilizing the Middle East when there's a Shia and a Sunni conflict that's gone on for 1,400 years. And the Middle East has become destabilized, so 14 or however many countries are now in chaos. Some of them aren't. But those that aren't already have a really established secular meaning non-religious government established, or a more religious government established, and it's keeping it in check. It's not perfect, and it's not democracy as Americans want to have it. But in the end, I think what we're seeing, and I think why you see President Obama uh, reaching out to Iran, is because without Iran, you're not going to probably stabilize the Shias, the 15% of the of the Shias that are in turmoil that might be causing a lot of problems in the Middle East. And without Saudi Arabia involved, you're not going to stabilize kind of the more aggressive Sunnis. So I think what he's trying to do is if you've ever played the game Jenga, he's trying to slowly pull a few pieces out of the of the puzzle without tipping the whole thing over again. He's building it back up. He's going to now none of these none of these players would we think are ideal, you know, always perfectly moral according to the U.S. standard or version of it um, and not necessarily pro-democracy. You know, I mean, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a great record with their women yet. We're OK with them right now because it's not about the women right now. Right now it's about they we need a stable, big bully brother in Saudi Arabia and a big bully brother in um, Iran. And I think President Obama is going to try to lean them together, create some tension, some stability, and then pull out as fast as he can, just like you do when you play Jenga. Once you get that piece out of that wood tower of little tiny, you know, little tiny, um, what do you call them, Ben? What would you call a Jenga piece? Just a little piece of wood. Once you get it pulled out, just see if it'll balance. And once it's balanced, get out of the way. Folks, it's that complicated. Now, let me just bring it home real quick. To the degree that you have a 1,400-year-old war, you also have very similar kind of battles and wars that might even be going on in the United States. And we may have seen in the shooting at a church a hate crime based in a prejudice, a belief could have been religious. We don't know. We don't know the data on that. But folks, these paradigms keep us entrenched and stuck in pain and misery. And I think we, a lot of times we think we're doing something for our God or for something that's right. And yet we're doing it in such an ugly, vicious, maniacal, devilish way. How on earth can you feel godly? We need to question it a little bit. And it might also tell us nothing is as easy as we want it to be and nothing is as ideal as it should be. 
Life is tough. Life is complicated. And uh, we're here to learn. That's just that's why we brought it to you. Hope we didn't overwhelm your mind. I mean, it's tough. I know. And it's not always something you want to talk about. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio.